session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakun, I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So before I get to the books of the week, I did want to announce this Sunday... In Los Angeles, it's this Sunday, um, the protest that is the third anniversary of the downing of flight PS752. But, um, of course, it's a protest to commemorate that, those lives lost, but also to continue the protests in support of the people of Iran. And so in Los Angeles, it is this Sunday, January 8th, starting at 12 noon at the Freedom Sculpture, which the address is 10 100 Santa Monica Boulevard. It's very close to the Century City Mall. Um, those of you familiar with that. And so hopefully get there early. I'm sure it's going to be very busy and lots of people will be there and parking and things you know could be difficult. But I hope you will all show up there anywhere. If you're anywhere close to Los Angeles, again, that's this Sunday, January 8th at 12 noon. And there are protests in. Um, support of this movement. If you go to Ahmed Esmailion's page, I hope I think I'm saying that slightly wrong, but uh, I, I know those of you are very familiar with him and the work he's done because he lost uh, family members in that plane crash. And so um, there are protests all around the world. There's many in the United States, but also I saw posts for Australia, so many across Europe as well. So I hope you'll be there. You can go to his page and see some of them are on the 7th, some are on the 8th. Most of them are on January 8th on Sunday. But I hope you'll be there and we'll all be together, even if we are in different cities, all in support of the people of Iran. So hope to see you there this Sunday if you are in the Los Angeles area. All right, this is my first shows of, of 2023. Didn't do shows last week, so going to catch up with two books today and then also the book for this week that I'll talk about next week is Curious Minds The Power of Connection by Perry Zern and Danny S. Bassett Curious Minds by Perry Zern and Danny S. Bassett so the book of the week from I guess two weeks ago because I didn't do any shows last week is Complicit by Max H. Bazerman, Complicit, How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop. And um, the book outlines how we know wrongdoers, evildoers throughout history, and their names tend to stand out. Hitler, Stalin, and then even in this book, he talks about people like Elizabeth Holmes from the Theranos, um, the company that claimed to be able to do these blood tests and incredibly fast with little blood and turn out all be false. Um, but we know the names of those main people who were possibly the leaders or the center of wrongdoing or evil. But this book looks at how others around them and those of us at large might be complicit in allowing or somehow facilitating 
the evil or bad behavior to happen and that we all might be more complicit than we realize. And I appreciated that himself, Max H. Bazerman, shared that he, several instances actually of his own potential complicity and in one case um, doing some research that actually got some attention for being fraudulent data or what appeared to be fraudulent data or was unclear where it came from and he was collaborating with others and he shares how he recognizes he was complicit even if he did not, let's say, take the actions through his inaction of not challenging or questioning strongly enough, he might have been complicit. So he outlines two main categories of people who are complicit. And he does say that you'll likely find yourself not relating to many of them, but you probably will relate to to some of them. And those two broad categories, there's obvious complicity and then ordinary complicity. So I can get into those a little bit. So obvious complicity is the more, um, as the, the phrasing would imply, those people who more clearly were complicit in aiding, abetting, facilitating, supporting someone or some movement that was doing some kind of bad or wrong. So there's the true partners. That's the first category under obvious complicity that he outlines. And those are individuals who actually believe or are in an alignment with the person. So let's say if we're looking at Hitler and the Nazis, the people who believed the message fully and who also wanted the vision that Hitler had. So those are the true partners. So those people are more clear for us that they were complicit in in, in enabling the wrongdoing and actually aiding the wrongdoing. Then there's also collaborators, he mentions, who might not agree or actually have the same vision, but because they're going to get some benefit from that person being in power or from type of a movement, they might support it anyway or also support it. So they might collaborate with someone that they recognize as doing something wrong, but because it also serves their interest in some way. And at times we see this in politics and share some examples of that, of people who might support a politician who is doing a lot of wrong things. He himself shares um, for, from Donald Trump and people like Mitch McConnell and others who maybe didn't agree with him and even outwardly did share they didn't agree with him. But then once he was in power, would go along or push forward his agenda or even um, make justifications for his behaviors and decisions because it also favored them doing some things they wanted to do. So those would be true collaborators. So those are the obvious complicity, those that we can see more clearly and most of us are not going to fall into that category. Most people won't. But then there's what he calls ordinary complicity, which is things that are much more benign and might seem like it's not clear that the person is doing something wrong. And often what they're doing wrong is through inaction. They are enabling something to happen. But most of us will likely find ourselves in one of these um, categories. And he has five of them. So the first one in this ordinary complicity category is benefiting from privilege. So at times we can be part of a system, whether it's a broader system or a smaller one, where we have some type of privilege or advantage. But what we find is that when people have some kind of privilege or advantage, they're less likely to notice it or recognize that something is wrong. We just think that that's the way it's supposed to be. So for example, we get a job because we know the boss or we get some kind of a 
advantage in some way in getting into a school, and we just think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be or how things are. It doesn't even cross our mind. The people who don't have that privilege are more likely to feel something, to mention something, um, or to want to fight that what they see as unjust, which would be an unjust system if it's not based on merit, although it's claiming to be. So that's one category of people that benefit from privilege and because of that might allow an unethical system to persist and just think that it's okay. It might not even cross their mind. So uh, by reading something like this, becoming aware of it, it can make us become more aware or to be more cognizant of how I might be personally benefiting from, from privilege and as a result, perpetuating or allowing for an unjust system to continue. He also includes believing in a false prophet as one topic or or one category here, which I thought was interesting. So often we're complicit without recognizing it, but he shares stories of, um, I think the last name of the individual is Newman, Adam Newman, who started WeWork, uh, and he was kind of had a godlike, definitely had a god messiah type of complex or narcissism, but made people believe in him so much that they followed him, even though it seemed like what he was claiming when you think more critically was not really possible in some of his business ideas, even bigger ideas, but he was like this false prophet. And so many of us can fall prey to a false prophet, someone claiming that they know better or uh, have some wisdom and infinite wisdom that means that we can just follow them even if things don't seem right. And, and often, as he shares in the book, they will say they're trying to create a new world. And so the rules, the old rules don't quite apply. And so they often do this to bend things in their favor and their benefit that if I am, am creating this new world and I have this vision and if I make you believe in it, then you might accept that for breaking the rules, maybe it's okay. Maybe that's part of this new system. That's part of the old world. And so you often see this in these charismatic leaders, especially ones who create cults that they, for example, will even take wives. There's a story from the Jonestown a massacre in the Jonestown um, group and how the leader, I forgot his name, uh, I think it's Jim Jones, uh, took the wife of this man that was part of the, the believers and he continued to believe in him. And then he got another wife and he took him, her too. And still he was believing in this person so wholeheartedly. And so you often see this, that the the leaders of these types of groups will will do things that clearly violate what we would consider any norm. But because they are godlike and because they're claiming to be creating this vision and this world that's different from what exists now, they often can fool people into going against what they would critically recognize as not okay and accepting it as okay. But he has that here as as its own uh, category. Now, of course, it's not always in these cult-like type of um, situations. It could be in business, like I was saying, with Adam Newman or Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos and how she was claiming things that clearly most people would recognize was not true, but they were not challenging it enough. They were drinking the Kool-Aid, which actually comes from the Jamestown massacre. Um, They were trying to, or they believed something that clearly they could have recognized was not true. So again, this could make us challenge, well, are there false prophets I believe in? Because of course, these people don't think they're false prophets. They think they're the real deal. But it can make us question, okay, is there anyone I'm giving too much faith in that possibly um, I might want to reconsider? Then there's authority and loyalty. So sometimes we're part of certain groups that makes us feel loyal. Or he talks about people in Harvey Weinstein's circle. And um, as was made clear, 
it wasn't some kind of secret that Harvey Weinstein was preying on female females um, to pretend like he was going to give them roles or set up meetings or things that seemed like meetings but make them in his hotels and his um, workers and employees would have systems of how to make things run smoothly so it's pretty clear of course people that worked for him knew it quite clearly but even most of Hollywood knew but many people did not want to uh, they had some type of loyalty or they're afraid of punishment possibly too which was real but nonetheless because of that type of loyalty they unfortunately stayed silent so we often see that because of authority or our loyalties to some kind of group we might be complicit to complete wrongdoing evil and we have to recognize that although we're not taking the action that is hurting people but our inaction when we know something wrong is happening uh, makes us also complicit or in that way guilty um, we do have this bias towards thinking that if you don't act that's not something wrong so some people even say well i didn't do anything and that means i did nothing wrong well sometimes doing nothing is doing the wrong thing let's say if you're walking by a pool and you see a child drowning you can't just say well i just kept walking i didn't do anything wrong your inaction was an, an something unethical you were put now in a situation where not taking action was making the wrong decision so we can't say that because we didn't take the action ourselves we did not do the wrong thing the wrong act we didn't do anything wrong and that's a main theme of this book is that if you're complicit we have to recognize and take some responsibility even if we're not the ones committing that evil act then uh, he talks about trust in our relationships as another category and, and here's where he talks about his own um, experience doing research with Dan Ariely and some others where it appeared and he even says that he had some objections or brought up some issues that it seems that some of the data doesn't make sense they were doing some driving data and people in a period of a year it seemed like they'd driven 24,000 miles was the average which is a lot um, driving like 12,000 15,000 miles is still even a good amount but 24,000 be an average in a large group seemed odd and he brought up some objections but he says I wasn't um, forthright enough I saw the ambiguity there's something wrong but it was ambiguous and I could have pushed harder so he does make the point that it's not that he wants us to be less trusting because we do need to have some basic level of trust and um, in most cases we'd like to be fooled meaning that we've trusted people more than we haven't trusted but however we can be more mindful that when things are ambiguous we can question or ask questions to know more especially when people can be harmed and the last one is creating and accepting unethical organizational systems and so this is something much more general that all of us can be aware of that um, it re relates to benefiting from privilege or various systems that we might be parts of that we likely are accepting things and just looking the other way or coming up with reasons like well that's just the way it is or things aren't always fair different ways that we justify things being unfair but we can and should think of ourselves as responsible to not just accept the status quo but to be open to first even looking at it questioning it and then challenging it and then he gets into some things we can try to do to prevent being uh, as complicit and he does mention this theme of ambiguity because of course if you read a book after the fact or you read about an incident after the fact everything seems obvious oh look this person was fooling investors they should have known or this politician pretended like they were going to do this but they did that and 
in hindsight, everything is 2020. It is very clear. Or if, oh, I saw someone abusing someone, of course I would do something. But often when we're there and experiencing something, there isn't these red lights flashing saying that we know for sure something is wrong. And so we see this from things like the bystander effect that people tend to feel a little hesitant to claim something is wrong. One of the early studies that demonstrated this type of effect was uh, of the ambiguity was people would be um, in an experiment, they're sitting in a room and it's them and someone else. Now they don't know that the other person is what we call a confederate, meaning that they're part of the experiment, but look like just an actor. They look like actually just the participant themselves. And then uh, the experimenter goes into a room and some sounds go off and then smoke starts coming out of the room. Now, the person who is part of the experiment just sits there calmly as if nothing is wrong and the smoke keeps filling the room and then we see that because that person is there, the other individual, the actual person being tested, um, sometimes will not even say anything to the point where they can't even read the papers they have in front of them because of the smoke. They're waving the smoke away to read the papers because they just assume, well, if the other person doesn't think anything is wrong, maybe I'm wrong to think there's a problem. And so uh, this book is not saying, well, if you think something's wrong, you're always right about that. But it does encourage us to be a little bit more mindful that when things are ambiguous, to take action or at least to question a bit more, which I think is important and good because in hindsight, we always think it was obvious, but in the moment it we won't. So we have to push ourselves a little bit out of that comfort zone. Uh, but also describes how it's easy for us just to point to the evil figures throughout history and even throughout the present time and think these are the bad people and it's all about them doing the bad things. But that's letting most people and almost all of us off the hook and we realize that we are all, through our actions and inactions, enabling things to happen. Uh, we can take a different mindset and approach to, to be more responsible and take that responsibility and actually take some action. So I, I like that um, theme in the book that, yes, it's easy to put all the blame on a few people, but we usually take ourselves out of the equation. And this book is asking us to shift away from that, to be aware of the ways that our actions and inactions, all of us are allowing injustices and evil and wrongdoings to, to perpetuate and to continue. So that book was Complicit by Max H. Bazerman. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, because I had no shows last week doing uh, two books today. So this book now is from last week's book of the week. Um, Make Your Bed by Admiral William H. McRaven. Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. I'd seen this book so many times, um, and I remember the speech. I don't think I even saw the full speech, but people posting it. So back uh, on May 17th, 2014, Admiral McRaven gave uh, the commencement speech for the graduating class of the University of Texas at Austin. And, and the speech went viral, and then so based on that speech and how popular it became, uh, he decided to extend that speech into a book based on these 10 um, rules or 10 lessons that he has. And the first one is to make your bed. And even though I just posted this, I think yesterday, 
um, immediately I got so many responses from people saying that they loved this book or someone that they know loved this book. So I got a pretty quick and swift reaction. And it's on the shorter side. Um, the speech itself is at the end of the book, but even the book itself is about 100, I think, 25 pages, including the speech, and gives these 10 practical steps that he learned himself. He was a Navy SEAL for decades and in the military for decades. Um, and he learned these lessons throughout his his experiences uh, in the Navy, but he shares that they apply to all of us when it comes to life. So I'll go through those um, 10 lessons, which begins with making your bed. And I remember I'd seen this so many times and I thought the whole book was about um, making your bed or how important that is. And not, not a whole book about making beds. That probably wouldn't be too long. But I, I didn't know that there was these 10 lessons, which I'll, so I'll get into those. So the first one is uh, to make your bed is to start your day with a task completed. And so he shares his experience that when he was in training, that w one of the things they would do or the first thing they had to do is to make their bed. And every day um, it would get inspected uh, to the T to make sure that it was perfectly made. But he says that it can be good and helpful to start your day by completing a task. And so if you make your bed, you're getting one thing done. And, you know, you hear um, other schools of thought or argument related to this, things like do one task and then create like a chain of things where you keep doing good things. And so I, I think it could make sense just to do something. And he even says that, well, even if you had a bad day, it's nice to come back to a made bed and that gives you a, a comfort when you're going to sleep, that tomorrow might be better. But to just try to start your day with completing something, then moving on to the next task. The next lesson is you can't go it alone. I very much agree with this, that if you want to do good things, as, as the subtitle of the book says, you can change your life, but also change the world. If you want to make any kind of considerable, significant change in the world, you're not going to do it alone. And so, of course, he shares stories of teamwork that he had to go through and as a Navy SEAL and their training and then um, in serving. But of course, all of us can take this lesson that if we really want to make any kind of impact, do something, we're going to have to do it with others. Chapter three, only the size of your heart matters. And when I first saw the title of the chapter, I thought it meant heart as in kindness, although he does share that in other parts of the book about doing good things, being good to people. But in here, it's more heart as in um, how much you're willing to give. And so he talks about these individuals that was more in the speech that were, they had small flippers because they were shorter than many of the other recruits, but they were actually finishing first and doing quite well. So, um, doesn't matter how strong your muscles are or how capable you are in a lot of ways or a lot of things that you're doing. It matters how hard you're willing to try. And I, um, like that uh, related argument of talent is overrated that if you want to be good at something the talent that you have innately it does matter but far less than how hard you're willing to work how dedicated and consistent you are in what you're doing chapter four is life's not fair drive on and so in this one he he talks about um, something that they call becoming a sugar cookie in their their training um, which sounds very sweet, but it is not. And it's basically that when they would sometimes um, do something wrong, and as he says, it's not even something wrong, sometimes they would just do it for any reason. So the, 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 the title of the chapter starts saying, if you want to change the world, 
get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. So a sugar cookie for them and the, the Navy SEALs and their training in Coronado close to San Diego was that um, if for whatever reason, one of their the supervisors, the people in charge, didn't like something they did or uh, wanted to essentially just give them a hard time, they would have to go into the water and then come out and roll in the sand till every inch of their body uniform was covered in sand. That's the sugar cookie part of it. And then the rest of the day, they would have to just be in that uniform, cold and with sand all over and just get through the day. And so, as you, uh, as I mentioned, it wasn't always that they did something wrong. It would just sometimes happen that they would say, okay, you have to be a sugar cookie. And so, um, as, as he says, don't be bogged down on that things aren't fair. Sometimes life won't be fair. And he shares stories of other people who have gone through things, even individuals who, for example, got injured in the line of duty and had to have legs amputated in different ways that they got injured, but they, they didn't complain and they moved on and kept going forward. Um, and so I think this is a very good lesson when we look at ourselves um, and recognizing that unfair things happen. Now, of course, any type of advice when it gets boiled down to a sentence is not going to generalize to every situation. And I've seen myself do this. Sometimes you'll hear advice like, well, it's not always true. Um, and I've even seen it in things that I've said, you'll post something online and people say, well, that's not true in this case, or that's not true when, when this is happening. Um, and that's, that's the truth. There's really no, um, advice that's going to be true 100% of the time. Usually it's the message that's there or the value that's there. That's important because sometimes life is not fair and you should do something about it. Stop the person that's doing the unfair thing to you, change a relationship, change a job, do lots of things. So it's not always that we just accept things when they are unfair. That wouldn't be good advice in many situations. It reminds me of that sur- the serenity prayer where it's like we have to um, accept things that we can't change and change the things that we can, but we have to have the wisdom to know the difference. That's the really critical part. When do I just learn to endure what is happening to me and find the good in it? And when do I change things or actually put efforts to change what's going on? Um, And the other part that for me, we have to be aware of with this um, life's not fair is that people often will say that for other people. So you can't tell someone else that the unfairness they're going through is okay or some other group. We see this a lot when individuals are fighting for more rights or fighting against discrimination that people will say, well, life's not fair, deal with it. And that I don't agree with at all. I think actually our um, duty as, as citizens of the world is to make things more fair, not to just say they're unfair. So when we see injustices, we, we fight against them, we do something about it. So in that case, um, I, I think we have to be careful of that. But he's talking here as I saw it, about us, when things happen to us, being aware of, okay, don't get bogged down and um, was it fair what happened to me? Uh, That shouldn't have happened. But when things happen, learn how to find the good in it. So in this case, they would become a sugar cookie covered in sand and cold water, but they would learn to deal with it and, and go forward and find a way through. They wouldn't just get bogged down. Well, that wasn't fair. Um, Chapter five, The fifth lesson is failure can make you stronger. And so here he talks about don't be afraid of being in the circus, something like that. But the circus was when they would fail at some task, or again, it could have just been for some odd reason, giving, getting a hard time from someone, they would have to do two hours of extra workouts after their 
incredibly grueling training that they already had, and that was called the circus. And so the hard thing was that they would do these two hours that was very difficult to get through, but on top of that, they knew that they would likely have less strength and endurance the next day because of these extra two hours, so you might get caught in it again, and the cycle might continue. But what he said was that many people, and he himself went through it a lot, recognized that actually by going through this, they became much stronger and they got through the training more easily later on. So that failure made them stronger. And I think that's great advice. And this one, it's a very specific of going through the circus that he was, they went through in their trainings, but ourselves that failure is what's going to make us stronger. And so many of us have a fear of failure. So we don't take risks. We don't try new things because we're so afraid of failure of getting it wrong and we make that the most important thing that we don't take enough risks in our life without recognizing actually the failures will make us stronger you learn from them you even learn from what it feels like to fail that you you take forward so i actually really um liked that piece of advice that fear or sorry that failure can make you stronger we should not fear that um, we're about at a commercial break so what i'll do is i'll do the the last five lessons of the the book after the commercial break again that is make your bed by william h mcraven we'll be right back welcome back continuing on the book make your bed by admiral william h mcraven there are the 10 lessons that are each one chapter in the book and so i was getting to chapter six you must dare greatly which uh, relates to what I was just talking about, failure making you stronger. We can't be afraid to fail, and we have to go boldly forward. He, he shares about this obstacle course that they had to do in their training, and there was one part that he kept doing, but he, he would do it okay, but he would go slow because he would try to go this safe way down this rope, um, kind of from top to bottom, but he said the fastest way to do it is you have to kind of go head first which sounds kind of crazy, but going down this rope head first made it way faster. And he was afraid to do it at first, but finally he did. And then was able to get through the obstacle course much more quickly. And so that was the theme or the lesson from that was that we must dare greatly if we want to do great things. And I completely agree with that. Um, chapter seven is standing up to the bullies. And so he talks about the being in these waters off the coast and how there were sharks, including even um, great white sharks could be there, but that they had to face the bullies. They, I don't, he never talked about seeing a shark, but that they knew they could and they had to go courageously. And that even they say that if you do see a shark, uh, you, you obviously don't want to, but if you do and they come up to you, you have to, I've heard this before too, but try to punch them in the nose or the mouth, which sounds um much easier said than done, but essentially you have to stand up to the bully. And so um, he shares also about seeing Saddam Hussein in Iraq after he was captured and seeing how people at first, the Iraqis that would go meet with him, still seemed afraid of him. And he had this arrogance and this intimidation, but that he never showed that type of deference to him. So he was standing up to the bully. And if we want to make big changes in the world, especially to overcome the people who are doing wrong, the people who tend to be in power and benefiting from that power, they will use intimidation, fear, to try to get you to do what they want or to not challenge them. But he talks about how we have to stand up 
to the bullies. And so I, I definitely agree with that. That is a good lesson to keep in mind. Chapter 8 is to rise to the occasion um, that in our darkest moments or when life is the darkest, that's when we need to show our best. And of course, easier said than done, but I, I think that's something good to keep in mind. And he shares stories of people who, um, in the darkest of times, literally he talks about the darkness of something they have to do as Navy SEALs is to go under ships and do things under ships where it's so dark that you can't even see your own hand and you have just a compass that's lit up, but even that's hard to see. And so that little literal darkness, they have to reach deep to two good things. But he also shares about fallen soldiers and people who respond to them um, when their families are coming to greet and grieve and how they responded. Um, but that's uh, something about being the brightest in those darkest moments. And so, uh, of course, as he talks about at the beginning of the book, most of us won't experience these types of things in our lives quite like this about, for example, doing the Navy SEALs training and things of that sort, or um, having loved ones lost in the military. Some people, of course, do go through that, but all of us will inevitably as part of life experience dark moments. And that's something that we have to uh, keep in mind that when life is the darkest as it will get dark, how can we be the brightest that we can be? Chapter nine is give people hope. And, and um, the, the, each chapter starts off with kind of a, a slogan or saying, and this one is, if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. And so he's talking about Hell Week in their SEAL training uh, experience and how one of the things they have to do is they have to be in this cold mud up to their neck for hours. I, I don't know if it was 16 hours or some incredibly long amount of time where it's very, very cold and uncomfortable and they're in pain and there's a, they just have to go through it. And basically they tempt them by saying, look, if five of you quit, and all of you can come to this warm fire we have where we have warm soup and food and coffee and warm yourselves by the fire. And then he says that someone almost did go. And then one of the other um, members of the group started just singing. He doesn't say what song, but I guess it was, it sounds like it's like a rock song. But anyway, they he started singing and they all started to sing along and they got through it. And so in a way he's saying that one first person gave them hope in that darkest moment or that very dark moment to get through it. So giving other people hope can be quite powerful and something that we hopefully can all um, learn from and learn to do. And so he shares stories of individuals who were greeting people again. Uh, John Kelly, who himself lost um, his son, I believe, sadly, in, in combat. When he was greeting those families who were grieving, he was able to give them hope because of what he had gone through. And so he's sharing that powerful lesson that um, give people hope. So when things are the worst, maybe you can sing or do whatever it is that helps give them hope. Um, funny story I'll share about myself. I was reading this part of the book yesterday, and then I was going to go drop off my car. It is funny when you think of how simple the problems are compared to them being in mud. And that's kind of part of the story. So I had to drop off my car about a mile and a half or so away from my house. I thought, okay, I'll drop it off and then I'll walk home. Um, you know, that was the original plan. But then the morning I'm getting ready and it started to rain. And for LA yesterday, it was raining pretty hard for 
us uh, LA people who are a little bit um, susul when it comes to the rain. We're not used to dealing with rain. When it starts to rain, we get very, everything, can, everyone cancels everything when it rains, which is kind of funny. But anyway, so I'm like, oh, wait, should I then Uber back or should I make another plan? But then I was reading this part of the book where they're in the mud and they're cold for hours and like, okay, I can't walk a mile in the rain. I'm like, no, I'm walking back. I'm going to walk home. And so I went and I even had an umbrella, but I was soaking wet and I was okay, but I was kind of laughing um, coming home thinking that, yeah, this book did actually inspire me a bit. And actually, I'm glad I did it. I laughed and enjoyed myself. And even though my feet were soaking wet and I was pretty wet, even with my umbrella, I was lucky it wasn't too cold. Um, It was quite a nice experience. So it was just funny how uh, reading this book made me feel like I couldn't take that easy way out and find some other way home. I was going to walk through the rain. Just kind of a funny story. Again, it it definitely was not Navy SEALs training. It was um, pedestrian training. Nonetheless, let's get back to the book. Chapter 10 is the last one, and that's never, ever quit, which is a great message. Um, And in this one, that subtitle is, if you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. And so when they go through their SEAL team training, um, most people don't get through it. And on the first day, he said that they tell us that, uh, you know, they're going to put them through all this really horrible stuff. This will be the hardest thing you'll ever go through. It's incredibly challenging. Um, As he said, their trainer said, you will be tested like no time in your life. Most of you will not make it through. I will see to that. So they, they're pushing them. And of course, it's not just because they want to punish them because they're sadistic. It's that they have to make sure they can make it through to do what they need to do to be a Navy SEAL. Um, but he says that if they ever want to stop, they can make it stop. The pain can stop. All they have to do is ring that bell three times. So that's how you basically say, I'm out. Um, So he says, ring the bell and you won't have to get up early. Ring the bell and you won't have to do the long runs, the cold swims, or the obstacle course. Ring the bell and you can avoid all this pain. I actually thought I like that. You can avoid all this pain, which of course sounds so nice. It sounds really good, obviously, to avoid pain. But of course, pain is also how we grow, something that I talk about often on the show, trying to figure out which pain is either damage or which pain is leading to our growth. And the pain they went through in their training made them incredibly strong and tough. Um, But of course, it could be easier to stop it. But he said after that, when he says uh, you can avoid all this pain, he says, but let me tell you something. If you quit, you will regret it for the rest of your life. Quitting never makes anything easier. And um, I I think that was really great and powerful. And he himself went through it, of course. Um, That's how he became an admiral, William um, H. McRaven, the author of the book. And so he said he does think anyone that quit probably did regret it uh, every day for the rest of their life. And so that's something for all of us to, to think about. And so again, no piece of advice is going to be true in every single case. There is something to be said of when do we learn to change course? So we might have to quit something or stop something. But um, in the majority of situations that we will face in our life, it will ask of us to push ourselves harder and further and to not give up. Um, Even that sentiment of you can avoid all this pain as just creatures as beings as biological beings we will want to avoid pain 
That's how our bodies and our brains are wired. Um, pain is telling you to go away from something. In the most basic sense, that's what our feelings do. They say either go towards something or away from something. So if something is hurting, our reaction is going to be to go away. This doesn't feel good, go away. But all of our opportunities for growth will feel that way. Okay, I'm not comfortable being in social situations, so going into situations creates a type of pain or discomfort. It's going to make me want to go away. But going into it is the only way that you will grow. Um, and we have to recognize that. So uh, there is this sense that pain is telling us something, which I think is very true. I always think it's important to try to understand what we're feeling, pay attention to it, understand it, but go deeper. Okay, I don't want to do this. And we're so good at finding ways. Oh, you know, I, I just don't feel like it, or maybe it's not right. Uh, and actually, um, I thought this book, for, for a few reasons I chose it for this week, but also because I knew so many people, myself included, would think about New Year's goals or resolutions. And so this theme of make your bed, do something right and take a right step in the right direction. And as I mentioned, I didn't even know that there were going to be these other lessons in the book. Uh, that's why I picked the book. But so often we'll find ways to stop doing something difficult. So if you set something as a goal, that means it's not going to be easy because it must have meant something for you. And anything that's worth doing is not going to be easy. Um, so quitting will definitely come to your mind. And we're, we won't call it quitting usually. We usually think it's for a good reason. Oh, you know, I, I stopped doing it because I don't think it makes sense. Or um, a thing I hear a lot is I, I, I didn't feel quite ready for it now. I don't think I'm ready for whatever the thing is, whether it's subtype of work, taking some kind of risk, some kind of relationship. We usually can say that. And the truth is you're kind of right that you don't feel ready for it. But with a lot of these things, the reality is that you'll never feel ready for it. So if we're doing anything that's out of our comfort zone, it's always going to feel uncomfortable, which means you're never going to feel ready to do that thing. So if your reason for quitting or stopping is it didn't quite feel right, that's a bad reason. Because anything that you want to do that's going to be difficult won't feel right. It's going to feel challenging, painful, will make you doubt that you can do it, doubt yourself, doubt that it's worth it, and you will likely give up. So I, I like that last lesson. Uh, don't ever quit because that's the, the thing that comes to us most is maybe I should just stop. So whatever you're doing, if it's worth doing, just know that you likely will have a very strong urge to quit many times because it's hard, but that's what makes it worth doing. You grow through that pain and that challenge. So I hope you will keep going and push through that pain. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed this book. I would say even more than I thought when I'd seen the book, it seemed simplistic to me, or I thought it was just about making your bed. Or again, I didn't really think it was a whole book on making beds, but um, I thought it might simplify things a bit. And at times I felt some of that in some of the messages, but I think that these lessons are are good ones to to think about and to keep and as he's mentioned, although he learned them through his military training and time in the military, it can apply to, to those of us um, in our day-to-day -day lives. So that was Make Your Bed by Admiral William H. McRaven. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before I continue again, a reminder for the protests taking place this weekend in Los Angeles. It'll be on Sunday, January 8th at 12 noon. 
at the Freedom Sculpture 10100 Santa Monica Boulevard. It's uh, in Century City, close to the Century City Mall. Hope to see you there. And again, there are protests happening around the world this weekend, most of them on Sunday the 8th, but I saw a few that were on Saturday. So please find the one near you and, and hope to see you there in Los Angeles, but hope to be with all of you around the world supporting um, the people of Iran and, of course, commemorating the third anniversary of the downing of flight PS752. See you there Sunday. In this uh, segment, I wanted to talk about something very New Year's related, but in a, in a twist of even what I usually talk about. So um, I talked last week in one of my last, or two weeks ago now, in one of my last shows uh, about goals, resolutions, and I know that's something that people tend to make for New Year's, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I do think it's, um, we sometimes think that, not that we only make them, but people make them new, during New Year's time, but not other times, and of course, there's never a bad time to start doing the right thing or a good thing, so uh, make those goals throughout the year. I wanted to share some thoughts on that to continue on what I shared last week, but also add a little twist to it as well. So um, as I was talking about this last time, uh, I know we make these goals and sometimes we think that they're set in stone and then we go forward. And if we don't meet them or we break them somehow, we just stop. And you see this a lot where people uh, have a New Year's resolution and they say, oh, by the eighth day, two thirds of people have broken them. I, I don't know the exact statistic and I'm, it's hard to be precise about something like this anyway, but things like that, you hear it. And that's how most people are with their resolutions. Oh, I tried to do it um, this year and I guess I have to wait till next year. But I really advise against that and to in general make your goals not so black and white and these types of rules that either you 100% make it or once it's broken it's done but focus on the value or the reason why you're doing something so you're trying to let's say be healthier and then you have a weight loss goal um, but not something that's either all or nothing you make it or you don't or once you didn't make it perfectly you give up on it so people do that and I think that's um, problematic but also to keep in mind you're you're setting a goal that's taking you in a direction but you likely will have to reevaluate it so people make a goal sometimes for the whole year and that can be good to have a long-term goal but I think one it's good to have short-term goals but also to create time to evaluate and reevaluate them because sometimes you make a goal and you see after even quickly but after let's say a little bit of time a few weeks a month two months that it's either not realistic or actually that you can do even more that if you just follow that path or that goal it's not going to be enough or that you don't even want to do that goal anymore for some hopefully legitimate reasons not just quitting as I was talking about in the last segment for the wrong reasons so that's con it's also an important thing to keep in mind is to not just think of them as something you make on January 1st or December 31st and then that's it just that's the plan for the year we always want to check and recheck and recorrect it reminds me of uh what they say how when pilots are getting from one destination to another it's not that you just set the course they're constantly uh, redirecting and checking and rechecking and then redirecting based on what they're getting as the feedback to get themselves finally to their destination so with our goals we have to follow a similar pattern and not assume that we just set the course and then it's going to get us there you likely will have to evaluate, reevaluate, and make some adjustments. But what I also wanted to add here that the twist I was talking about is not just to think of New Year's 
goals and resolutions uh, and I also prefer goals rather than resolutions because the resolutions are usually more of the black and white type of promises like I'll never do this or every day I'll do this and then once they're broken people give up so the goals tend to be more of something that's ongoing but another category related to that is not just New Year's goals but New Year's risks and risks for the new year and the reason why I say this is that I've noticed for myself or most people I talk to that when you look at their New Year's goals, from year to year, they tend to be the same. Well, one is because they often we often don't achieve them, so we make the same goal for the next year. But another reason why I, I'm bringing this up is not just that we don't achieve them, but we tend to think of the same things. So even with our goals, they might push us out of our comfort zone, but the types of goals we think about might be in our comfort zone. Things that we already do or are focused on, or care about. There are some general categories that most people tend to have New Year's goals and resolutions about, things like uh, health or fitness, financial, professional, sometimes relationship types of goals or aspirations or things people want to do. But there usually tend to be a few categories that people put their goals into. And so that's good. And I'm not saying don't do those things. Those can be wonderful. But what I'm recommending is to add another category to this or another thing to think about, which is what are my risks for this year? What are the things I want to do in this next year that will be risky or a little bit scary for me or something I've never done before? So it's not just, okay, I've exercised. I want to exercise more. That's great. Do that. That's a really good thing. But also what's something you've never tried that you think you would like to try or that you're think you should try but you're afraid to try that would be good because most of us don't even like to consider these new things to do because they scare us but that's exactly why we want to look at them the things that we fear the most tend to be the areas that we can grow the most as well or when we it comes to our career we might make goals like okay do five percent more in this or make ten percent more money or twenty percent more money people might have goals like that, but rarely is it change my career in some significant way. And so I'm not advocating for changing your life or that everything in your life needs to become different. Uh, I tend to go away from the new year, new you mindset where people think that they're going to become this new, completely new person in the new year, or even that they need to become a completely new person. So it doesn't mean we throw everything away, but that we are willing to take a look at our life in a different way with fresh eyes that might recognize what might I not even want to be looking at. When I talk to people about their careers, I notice this uh, tendency to put some blinders on or to really narrow what people are willing to look at in all aspects of life, but at times career advice is something that people will talk about in therapy or I work with younger adults and they want to figure out even what to do, but even with people who are older and who've been working for quite some time, often they're thinking about things they can do. And what I recognize is they're not really open to thinking about what they could do because they don't want to even consider something that might be scary for them or that might involve a big change. So to go back to school or to completely start over, they might have to start at the bottom or be a novice or a beginner in a new field, or they might have to financially sacrifice for some time in order to make that change. Often those things that scare them 
about the change make them not even consider the change as a real possibility. So they don't even consider it. We won't want to consider what we want to do because what we want might be difficult to achieve. So it's like um, someone who is afraid of flying might not think that their dream vacation is somewhere that they need to fly to. They might only suggest places they can drive to or that they can reasonably drive to. It's not because they don't want to go somewhere else, but it's because they're afraid to take that step or one of the steps necessary to get there. I want to go to Europe, but I'm afraid to go on a plane, so I only will go to San Diego and San Francisco. And it's not because I like those places better even. Of course, there could be financial considerations, but in this type of a scenario I'm describing, that's not the limiting factor. It's we're afraid to go where we want to go. And so in our lives, we tend to be that way as well. And so what I've recognized when I ask people, not in some cliche way of what's your dream job, but really in a genuine way of what is your dream job or what do you think you would like to do if you really could do anything, I see that many people won't actually let themselves dream unless they're doing it in some very idealized view where they, you know, they're like 50 years old and they say they want to be a basketball player. So it's kind of like if they could live another life or in some kind of fantasy. That's not what I'm talking about here when we talk about a dream. It doesn't mean you're in a dream. It's turning your life closer to that dream or what you would uh, feel like is like living a dream. So not something like I, I want to be, uh, you know, something that I had to start 30 years ago, um, but something that you can do now. What would be your dream now? But I think most of us, most of the time, won't want to give that question the real consideration that it would take to allow ourselves to find that dream or that ideal for ourselves. Again, here by ideal, I don't mean idealizing something as an unrealistic, but as in what is the most ideal out of the possible realm of possibilities, out of reality. So if we think that way, what would you want to do? And, and here I was talking about professional, but not just in that way. If we allow ourselves to think a little bit more bravely, or even in our thinking, what would come to your mind that you would want to do? And so when you consider what you want to do for this year, and again, it doesn't have to be a, something you do for New Year's, or it doesn't have to be a year-long type of a plan that you can make, but what are some New Year's risks that you want to take? What are some things that you would be happy if you think about it, you'll be happy that you tried? And as I mentioned, I was talking about the book that failure will make us stronger. Um, don't be afraid of the failure. Don't think about that part. doesn't mean you're unrealistic and think you can't fail. But when we're thinking about possibilities, we have to think about what we can do or what is possible. So I hope people, along with thinking of goals and resolutions and those things, which is good, will expand their vision a bit as well and think about the risks. I think most people, if you ask them their New Year's resolutions for the last 10 years, they'll probably all be pretty similar. There won't be a huge range of things there. It'll be the same things repeated, maybe obviously adjusted. Okay, this year I wanted to read this many books. This year I wanted to either lose weight, gain weight, get stronger. But they tend to be in some realms and doing the same types of things. But if we really are getting out of our comfort zone, it means we have to do things that we maybe haven't even thought about or afraid to think about doing. What are your New Year's risks and what will you do to get there? Or how will you get there? 
and keep yourself accountable that you want to try new things. The reason why it could be important to think about the risks is that, as I was mentioning, I forgot in which segment, but today, that's always going to feel like the wrong thing to do. If it feels a bit risky, it's never going to feel like I can't wait to try it. It always will feel like I should do it later. And I hear that a lot that, you know, I don't think I'm quite ready yet. And the truth is, okay, that might mean that it's time to start. Because when you're doing something risky, something new, you can never feel ready for that. I see the same thing with people that I work with in therapy that are either going to get married or become parents. Most of the time, people feel a bit unready. And actually, I think that could be a good thing. Not that they're unprepared, but that they recognize you can't fully be prepared for something like this. Something that's that big of a change and something you've never done. You can read all about parenting and reflect on yourself to understand your own childhood and what you went through, what your parents were like, go through therapy, but you're never fully ready to be a parent. It's always going to be very difficult and you're going to face challenges that you couldn't understand until you started to do it. So when it comes to taking risks, we have to recognize that if something is genuinely risky or feels risky for us, we're never going to feel ready to do it. And so it's going to take some type of push from ourselves, even from others, And it's going to take some kind of a leap, meaning that you jump without knowing exactly where you're going to land. We really don't like that feeling of being essentially in thin air, jumping and not knowing where you're going to land. But that's the only way you can take a risk is you can't know how you're going to land, where you're going to land, when you're going to land, but you have to go for it. So I hope that when people are making their goals, and I know people might think, oh, it's already into the new year, isn't it too late? Well, You can start your goals anytime. But if you're thinking about New Year's resolutions and goals, I hope you'll also think about New Year's risks. What are some risks that I want to take this year? What are some new things I want to try? What are some um, ways that I would, if I couldn't fail or I knew I wouldn't fail, what would I do? What would I try to do? And then push ourselves and get support from others to help push us to take those risks, to take those leaps in those new directions to see what we can find and learn. If we fail, great, we'll learn from that. If you succeed, that's great too. You'll feel good about whatever it is that you're doing. So hopefully you'll take some New Year's risks. And uh, I always like sometimes people will send me messages and things of things related to what I talk about on the show. So if you have some New Year's risks, please feel free to send them my way and then let me know when you've taken them too. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to talk about democracy. Well, I mean, yes and no about democracy, but um, yes to democracy. But some of the psychology of voting or being part of democracy, because I've I've thought about this a lot, and also you hear arguments about people when it comes to things like voting or if you should or shouldn't vote or what's the point of voting. And so I had some thoughts come to my mind that I wanted to share um, related to that. But it's also relevant in the sense of collective action or doing things to help make a difference or make a change. Because I've talked about this a lot in relation to what's happening in Iran and for those of us outside of Iran trying to give support, at times the feeling can come up of what's the point or what difference does it make? What difference does my um, 
action make? If I post something, who cares? I have 300 followers. What difference does it make? Or even if I had a lot of followers or whatever it is, what's the difference of this one action? And so it's one of these paradoxes that one action has really almost no impact, but that it's also the only thing that does have an impact because it's a collection of those single actions that becomes something. So each one of them doesn't have much value or we say almost no value when you look at some very, very small individual actions. But the only thing that creates these types of movements that creates this positive change is those actions, but many of them together. I've shared this even at times being at some of the protests and you look around and you see hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that are there. And then so there's each of those people, if one of them wasn't there, when you have, let's say, 500 people there, if it's 499, it doesn't make a difference. You can't even tell. You wouldn't be able to know. We can't even, we try to count how many people were there or we estimate. We don't know exactly. So one person being there or not being there doesn't make a difference. But it's all of those one people being there that makes a difference too. So this is a paradox that at times is hard for us to, I think, get or makes us minimize our contribution. I think we look at it the wrong way. Is it my one action that is changing everything? Or is it the collective action and I have to be part of that collective? If I'm not there, it's all of us doing it. All of us have to collectively do something. So you're at a protest and people, everyone is, you know, they have their signs and people say things and everyone is voicing something. So we can really look, there's thousands, even if you slice it up, millions of little things that happen to make one protest happen. And even that one protest in one place in the world, what impact does it have? Maybe not that much one protest. If we remove one of the protests that has happened, especially outside of Iran in the last hundred days or so, it makes no difference in what's happening. But it's everything altogether that is making the difference. And so that's why I always recommend us to focus on our responsibility rather than a specific result, because that can keep us going. That what am I responsible to do this weekend? If you decide to go to one of these protests, I really hope you do. But if you don't go, it's not that it's going to make a difference. There's going to still be many people there voicing their support with their signs and doing things. But it's asking yourself, do I want to do what's my responsibility the most that I can do or not do it? So if I go this Sunday, it won't change anything. But I know for myself, I feel responsible to go. And that's why I'm going to do the most that I can for people who are suffering and actually going through something and going through the challenges. This is the least that I can do. And I want to do it to the most of my ability and the most that I can do. So when we're part of collective actions, we have to recognize that we are, yes, a small part of it, but it is through that togetherness of each of us being a small part that we create something quite large and make a movement and make change. So I hope all of you, when you're thinking about going Sunday or Saturday, depending on where you live, won't think about, well, will it make a difference if I'm there? The real answer to that is no. It won't make a difference if you as a one person is there. But all of us going together, that's what's going to make a difference. So all of us thinking of it as I have to do my part and I'm going to do it, that's going to make the difference. So I hope you will all be there and recognize it as our responsibility, not as, is it going to change anything? No, it's not going to make a change, but together we will make a change. So I hope you will uh, be there this weekend and continue to do whatever you can. Again, one of your actions themselves won't make a change, 
but all of them with everyone else can make a change and will make the change. It's the only thing that ever has is people coming together, doing lots of little things that build up to huge, huge, huge things that change the world. So I hope you will continue to do that. And so in connection to democracy and voting, something I've often heard, and it has a similar type of theme or argument to it is like, well, what's what's the point of me voting? Let's say you're in California, more than likely with, let's say, in the presidential election, it's going to go to the Democratic uh, candidate, as it has historically. Almost always it does, and maybe by even millions of votes, or I don't know exactly how many. So you might think, why, why would I vote? It makes no difference, again, in the same type of way. Even here, it might seem more that way. It might feel like it just washes out in the election. But what I find in a way funny about this is that what you're essentially saying is, I only want to vote if I'm deciding who wins, which is basically saying a type of monarchy or having just a single ruler making the decisions. Because I know people say, well, if it's kind of close, I want to go. But at the end of the day, if we're using this type of logic, it's only if you have the vote that made the difference, that you show up and you pick the person who's going to win. If you go towards, well, yeah, but if it's like 100 people, then, you know, if people like me make a decision, well, now you're moving back towards the the collective that everyone has to do their part or will do their part. And so to me, it's a, a way of thinking about it is that if I believe in a democracy, which means that everyone should have a voice and every voice counts and we count all the voices and then essentially see what's loudest or see what the most people want and we go with that. Well, then I should believe that everyone should put their voice forward and then we understand from that what we want to do. And also, I, I think to me, what is another point here is not just that, uh, is it going to decide this election? Um, but a few things happened. One is if you give your voice, we see how clearly things are. So there's a difference if 51% of people like a candidate or an idea, or if 81% like that. And we only know if everyone gives their voice. So we understand better. It's not just about winning and losing elections. There's information there that we understand as as a society, as, as a community, about what people want. That's very important. And also in, in new movements, new things happening within democracies, one of the, the big issues we do have, I think, in the United States is having just a two-party system polarizes things. It doesn't lend itself for different types of diversity of thought, of ideas, because you have to just fall into these two big tents and there's not a lot of room for for discourse when you, you have that. But for new ideas to emerge, so sometimes it's okay if it doesn't win, but people see, okay, 10% of people like this idea or this movement or something, that also can make people think about things differently as well. So I, I think when we look at voting, which right now there's no upcoming elections here in the United States, but just in general, when we think about this concept or this mindset, the idea that is my vote going to determine or change the election to me is the wrong way to think about voting. Because again, if you believe in a democracy, your one vote shouldn't change the election. That would be having something like a monarchy or that you would be the ultimate power that makes the decisions. That's not what you're participating in. So if you believe in a democracy, then you shouldn't think your vote makes the difference. That's what a democracy is about, is that everyone voices together, we figure out the difference, we figure out uh, what people want. Um, just a thought in 
kind of against that argument that looking at does my vote make a difference in the uh, ways of thinking, because I always hear this every election, and people say, well, why should I vote? It's not going to make a difference. But the difference isn't in picking the person, the difference is in putting your voice forward and adding it to the collective voice of understanding what's going on. And so coming back to what, what is happening around the world, uh, or what's happening in Iran, I hope we all recognize our, our responsibility, that none of us is going to change things. You know, often when we see a movement or we historically learn of a movement, we usually hear one leader. For example, Martin Luther King Jr., someone who I admire for what he did in the civil rights movement. Um, And it's not to minimize or undermine what he did, but we know that it wasn't him alone. And often, historically, in how we tell stories, one person gets the credit. We say, who did this? And it becomes one person. When really no good is committed by one person alone. Um, You know, the book I first started the show with today was Complicit by Max H. Bazerman, looking at how we all, um, as the subtitle says, enable the unethical to happen. So how do we all enable unethical things to happen? Or if we look at anyone who's committed evil, really they didn't do it alone. There was people supporting them, or at least people looking the other way, but different levels of people who were complicit. But the other thing is true as well in collaborating for good. We don't really see good happen by just one person doing something. It's a collective. And so what's happening in Iran, and this is not to speak about what's happening within Iran, because I know um, sometimes there's thoughts of, do you need a leader? What does that look like? And I I won't go there. But even outside of uh, Iran, for those of us supporting, at times there are people who emerge as figures, and I don't think that's bad. We do look to people, and people are sharing information and uh, become amplifiers of the voice and even louder amplifiers and others at times, and that's okay. But none of us necessarily are going to be the person who makes this thing happen alone. It is a very collective thing. And of course, um, what any of us outside of Iran are doing is only amplifying the voices, stories, struggles, sacrifices of the people in Iran who are the ones going through it. So we can't be the ones making that full Uh, to take that full credit for it or that responsibility. But we are doing, again, as I was mentioning, our little part to the most. But we don't need to have one person that we look to as being the person who's going to make that change from the outside. I just hope we all support one another. And related to that, not get caught up in who is the head of that or who is the most right when it comes to this. Because something I've seen at times come up and you see these waves of disunity amongst people who are trying to support the people of Iran. And that's the last thing we need and the thing that will make our efforts futile. We're all trying to push this heavy rock forward. If some of us are pushing backwards or saying you're not pushing the right way or you shouldn't push like that or your form is bad, we're just going to get in each other's way and take away from our collective efforts all in the same direction. So I hope we will continue to keep that in mind as we are fighting for the people in Iran and trying to support them, that we won't always agree exactly with what people are saying. You might not like some of the ways they do it, the ways they message things, some of the words they use. Um, You know, something also I see is, is the person doing it for attention? Are they doing it for the right reasons? And of course, we can never fully know someone's internal intention and what they are going through. Sometimes we might think something seems a certain way, and it might even be. 
And I would also add this, most of the time, most people are doing things with multiple intentions. So they might be doing it really mostly out of the goodness of their heart, but people don't mind looking good. We'd like to look good to others. That's not a bad thing, or that's not something that we're going to go away from. Hopefully that's not the driving force, that you're not doing it because you want to look good. And sometimes people you might feel like are going more in that direction. But I would say, try to hold back that judgment as much as possible and try to help amplify each other as well. Of course, we're amplifying the voices of the people in Iran, but also we can amplify the voices outside who are doing that and who are creating content and creating art and creating different ways of of doing that. We can be supporting one another in this struggle, in this fight, and not get caught up in, well, I think this person wants attention, or I think this person um, is doing it for themselves or to become famous themselves or whatever it might be. I hope we will move towards that and stay in support and recognize that, again, none of us individually is going to make a huge change, but all of us together can make a huge change. And in fact, the only thing that will is if we all work together towards that. And so I hope I do see you this weekend. If you're in the L.A. area, uh, I will be there. Um, but wherever you are around the world, find the, the protests around you, and I hope you will be there as well. And You showing up won't change everything, but the only thing that will change everything is if we all show up. So hope to see you there this Sunday and hope to see your posts from wherever you are around the world. We will be together for the people of Iran. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I wanted to talk about how we have this tendency to want everything to be okay, which makes sense. We we want things to be okay. But how this also leads us to misappraise situations or we tend to go towards accepting or wanting to believe people that tell us everything is okay, even when things might not be. And this means that things might not be okay in the moment or that it might be um, not okay in the future based on something that's happening. Our tendencies towards thinking that things are going to be okay or to maintain or accept the status quo. It must be okay this way. Even in things like injustices, we find ways to uh, justify, well, maybe the people did something. uh, Maybe it's their fault in some way. Maybe they're less than in some way. We also go to also, uh, I was talking before about this, that life isn't fair. So we have to just, you know, accept that maybe things are this way. Um, But also when we think about things in the future, we will always lean towards accepting things the way they are. So, for example, when it comes to climate change, when we talk about things will get worse down the line or we're going to experience some things down the line, it's hard for us to understand this as, as human beings, as animals. We're just used to, we see some type of reaction to what we do and we learn from that. But when we say years from now, you're going to face some consequence. It's hard for us to really take that into account as heavily as we usually should. And so that's what we're seeing with climate change. And of course, there's so many things that relate to that from people who make so much money from things not changing to uh, ambiguity of the science, of course, as far as the details, but not ambiguity of that we're actually having a negative impact on the environment. But many things contribute to the people just saying, keep things the way they are. And so when someone tells us things are okay, uh, I've thought about this, they always seem like 
the the cooler person in many ways. Cool, really, in the way we talk about it, but just more calm, and that makes other people look like they're too worried. You know, and it, this is also related to things like the bystander effect. That when I was talking about that study, that there's smoke in the room, we'd rather be the person who says, "Oh, everything's probably everything's okay. Nothing to worry about. Don't don't stress. Don't make a big deal out of something." And those people tend to get more positive attention. And so, of course, it's not advocating for being paranoid or being overly worried or panicking about everything, because of course people do that as well. But we do have this tendency to overlook the person who tells us everything's going to be okay and taking their word for it. Um, an example of this is something like smoking. So uh, I think it's actually a great example for it, because sometimes people think it looks cool when you smoke, smoking a cigarette, and you see rock stars, actors doing it, and it can look cool in its way, but the painful effects happen later on down the line. Someone who has lung cancer from smoking for years, it's years later they unfortunately will experience those negative effects, but if you saw them when they were first smoking, they might have looked cool and looked, you know, like they were uh, calm and didn't care about the consequences in some way or that there wouldn't be negative consequences to that. So when we look at someone in the moment, for example, someone says, oh, this bridge needs to be reinforced. It's not very strong. And maybe in a year's time, it's going to break or fall apart. And someone else says, no, there's no problem with this bridge. Watch, I'm going to drive across it. And they drive across and nothing happens. And they look cool. And the other person looks like an anxious worrier and maybe even weak or whatever else you might label them as for being concerned about what's going on. And seemingly, we think making something out of nothing. But unfortunately, if we don't listen to that person's advice, there might be some tragedy that happens a year from now or however long from now that it happens. But we have that tendency to go towards wanting to believe that everything is okay and also wanting to be the person that thinks that everything is okay. Some studies have been found that men might have this tendency more than women. I don't know if that those studies have been replicated or have been updated, but I've seen types of research related to the bystander effect that even more, if things seem ambiguous and no one has said anything, a lot of times men might be even more likely to want to be cool and not be seen as someone who worries that things are wrong or not okay and not be the person that says, oh, something might be going on. And so they're more likely to just say nothing's wrong or to not bring up what is happening. So we do want to be mindful of our tendency to go towards everything is okay to admire people that tell us everything is okay and for our own judgments to see things in this way. And again, it makes sense that we prefer this. Of course, if I tell you there's a fire, if I tell you actually, no, that smoke is not from a fire, it's from something else, you feel a lot better than actually checking to see, is it a fire, is something wrong? And so for some of us, we might worry too much, but for many of us, we might not worry enough about certain things or want to take things in that cool way or that way that it's okay. And this also relates to people being treated unfairly. And I, I mentioned that already in this segment, that we tend to find ways to justify it as, as okay. And I've heard so many descriptions and justifications to explain things. And, and really humans were amazing in a lot of ways, things we've accomplished and things that we've done. Um, but one of the other ways that were quite amazing is the mental gymnastics we can pull off to justify whatever we want to justify. So 
We can justify even killing people by finding a reason why it's okay, or in this case, it was all right, uh, or lying, or whatever it might be. And we've all done it. Every single one of us has done this. Sometimes we're not aware of it. It's not necessarily that we're consciously or intentionally try to fool others or even fool ourselves. We automatically are very good at coming up with arguments to justify uh, what we're doing. Even they've done research, for example, on people who have some types of issues with their brain, either they had um, some brain damage or they've split their brains, the corpus callosum, to not have communication between the right and left, maybe if they had seizures that were really bad. And they'll show something, someone something that they are not conscious of, and they'll act on that thing. For example, it says open the door, and they'll go do it, but they're not conscious of it. And they ask them, why did you open the door? They say, oh yeah, we need to get some fresh air in here. Instantly, they come up with a reason to justify why they're doing what they're doing. And they're not trying to lie. Their brain just comes up with a reason because it does see that they're going to open the door and they have this urge to open the door and they're not sure why and they come up with a reason for it. So we're very, very good at coming up with these reasons which overall can serve us, but also can make us believe things that make no sense, justify things that are not okay, and get ourselves into really bad situations or get others in bad situations as well. So when it comes to things that are unfair happening, we're incredibly good at coming up with the reasons why they're okay. Part of that reason is also that we don't want to do anything about it, because when we acknowledge that something is not okay, we have to do something. So you're laying down and you see smoke, you hope that the smoke is not from a fire that you have to get up and run because you're comfortable laying in your bed or laying down. You don't want to get up. So you say, is that a fire? And say, oh, no, no, it's just this uh, fog machine from the neighbors. It's not a fire. Okay, oh, good. I'd rather believe that it's not a fire so I can just continue being comfortable. And so in our lives, we do that in a bigger scale. Okay, something unfair in the world? Um, oh, no, no, it's it's fine. It's supposed to be this way. Or it's If it's been this way, it should be this way. Or um, other things that I might um, mention later, the reasons we come up with, we find a way to stay comfortable. We find a way to stay the way that we are because change is always hard. Change involves effort and we'd rather not do that. And so what I often try to bring up on this show is to recognize some of our tendencies, our human tendencies, the psychological ways that we might trick ourselves to try to counter that to recognize that you usually will think that things are okay and that there's no problem. You know, I think we saw something there. No, no, it's probably nothing. We tend to go towards it's probably nothing when we're not sure about things. And that that's relevant to this book, Complicit, where in hindsight, it's easy to say, but in the moment, we had times when we see the ambiguity, unfortunately, we tend to go towards it's probably fine the way it is. Even they've done studies where people are being hurt or assaulted or it's happened in real life when we look at the bystander effect. And when others are not taking action, we just assume probably everything's okay. It looks bad or it kind of feels weird, but I guess it's fine. And in another way that hindsight is 2020 is that we do worry about other things too. So of course, I'm not saying anytime things are ambiguous, it has to be something bad. That's not the case. And so sometimes when you hear people say, oh, I knew there was something wrong with this, or sometimes it shows up in financial things where a stock goes up. People go, oh, I knew that was going to go up. And probably the cases that they thought about it, 
but they've also thought about many other ones that when it didn't go up or stayed the same price, they didn't say anything about it. But this one stands out and says, oh, see, I, I knew it was going to go up. So we do we have to be aware of our, our hindsight tricking us into thinking we know more than we know. So I'm not trying to say if things are ambiguous to always assume it has to be bad. But I do want us to recognize that we tend to go towards thinking it's okay the way that things are. We hear some noise, something happens, we think it must be okay. I actually remember hearing a story from a a professor saying that uh, they were at a psychology conference where they were talking about things like the bystander effect and things of that sort, and they heard some noise outside in the hall, and it was ambiguous. It could have just been something falling over or, you know, some thump or whatever it was, and many times that would just get ignored, and they'd go back to doing what they were doing, back to the status quo. But because all of these researchers looked into these things, they were more likely to challenge that. And they went outside and someone had collapsed. They'd fallen and they they intervened in some way. I don't, I don't know exactly what happened. And maybe some of the stories exaggerated to just make the point. But it does show us that our tendency is to assume it's okay to not do anything. We have to challenge that, to not assume things are okay. I see this with parents and their kids. You know, my, my kids said something about wanting to kill himself or something. You know, he was just mad. And things are probably okay. And so even in this case where we're talking about parents, and these are parents who love their kids. It's not that they don't care. It's that they don't want it to be true so much, a type of denial. They don't want it to be true so much that they assume that everything's okay because that would be a lot easier. It would be a lot easier if your kid just said it in a fit of rage and or said it in a, you know, people will say a manipulative way to try to get you to give them what they want or to give them attention or whatever it is. It would be a lot better for it to be that than for them to actively or actually be suicidal. But we don't want to just give in to this tendency to want it to be a certain way and want the status quo or that everything is okay to be true and actually look at what's going on. And so I always encourage parents, if you're kid says anything, it's not just parents, even a loved one, anything related to suicide, even in passing, even when it seemed like they were really angry, even when it seemed like they wanted to get something from you or whatever it is, to always take it seriously. And taking it seriously, unless it's really serious emergency, I don't mean call 911 instantly, but I mean take it seriously as in take it as real enough to make it a conversation. Go talk to your child and say, You know, whenever they've calmed down or whenever you can talk to them, when we're having that argument, you said something about hurting yourself, killing yourself. I just wanted to make sure, is that really how you feel or are you serious about it? And see what they say. Most of the time they might, they won't be. And they will say, oh, I was just angry or upset or no, I don't want to. I really was angry, but I don't feel that way. But it is possible that there's something there. Not only that. What's going on that makes them say that in that moment? So if someone is even using that, if you think it's in a quote-unquote manipulative way, well, what's going on that's making them get to that point or go there itself? That could be something. So we want to go away from assuming that things are okay because that's always going to be our tendency with things that scare us or we would prefer it to be that way. Our bias is going to be towards assuming it's okay. And with parents, again, I've seen this countless times, that they don't want, oh, my kid, no, they can't be depressed, or they're not this, or they're just, you know, it's, it's other things, but nothing is that wrong. But also in the ways that we look at the world, to be mindful of that tendency, and also to be mindful of falling for people or um, going towards people that will just always tell us everything 
is okay. Yes, sometimes we go to people who know better than us and they give us that reassurance. That could be worth something. So again, I'm not saying something's always wrong. I'm not trying to alert panic. And I'm sure many people listening have a lot of anxiety or worries, so they might have to go in the other direction. But for those of us in general to be aware of this tendency to go towards things being okay, that injustices are not that unjust, that people being treated poorly, they're actually all right, or that maybe just life isn't fair, and that's something we have to accept, to not accept those things and to fight against them. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Again, please make it out to the protests nearest you. There's ones all across the United States and all across the world here in L.A., January 8th at 12 noon, the Freedom Sculpture 10100 Santa Monica Boulevard in Century City. Get there, get there early. I think it's from 12 p.m. It starts, I know, but I think it's going till 2 p.m. So I hope you'll be there and do your part, meet your responsibility. All of us together can make an impact. Hope to see you there. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farhuda Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. <laughs>